0: Well, this morning we continue in our, our series of questions that Jesus asked. We'll be looking at a story that is a story within a story uh, in Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 24 through 34. Uh, our story today is uh, what uh, Bible scholar, theologian D.A. Carson calls a, a Markan sandwich. Uh, he's, uh, as Mark has uh, throughout his book, he starts one story and then introduces a second story and then reverts back to the first story uh, and they are all compacted and somewhat like a a sandwich. And as he points out, and since our our focus is the the middle story uh, this morning, uh, it's by what is in the sandwich that is often defines what the sandwich is. A ham sandwich can come in any any number of different breads. A peanut butter sandwich can come on any different kinds of breads. It's what's in the middle uh, that matters. Now there's a sense in which that's the case for us this morning But the reason that Mark does this, literary wise, is because there is value not only in each of the stories, but in comparing and contrasting the stories as well. This morning we're going to be focusing just on the the meat of the story, the the middle uh, of the story, uh, and the question that Jesus asked there. And so if you will follow with your Bibles, let's read God's Word together, beginning in Mark chapter 5, verse 24. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning with thankfulness for this story, for all of Scripture, which you have given to us, and pray that you would speak to us that we might see you more clearly as we see Jesus, that we might, through him, know what you are like, that you might speak to us, you would sharpen us, you would shape us, and in all things, you would make us whole. You have made this promise, so our prayer is not something that we are just clinging to uh, out of vain, but we uh, we come with a great expectation. And pray, even though we have this expectation, we also know that we have holes in it. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Be gracious and be at work through us as we study your word this morning. We pray that it would produce in us Christ-likeness, that you would be pleased, that we would rejoice in you. We pray all things to your glory in Jesus. Amen. Desperation. I don't think there's a better word that can describe uh, the mindset this woman was experiencing at the moment that we meet her in this passage. She'd been suffering from some complex gynecological problem for a dozen years. That itself was wearying, and so no doubt she was tired and frustrated and hopeless, even as she felt somewhat helpless. She'd been to a number of doctors asking for help, the first perhaps with great expectation. She knew something wasn't quite right. It wasn't the way things normally had been. It's not the way things are normally for others as well. So she went to the doctor and asked if he had anything that he could prescribe to help. His answer was probably yes and gave her some sort of prescription, which she took, but to no effect she went to other doctor and then another asking each one of them if they would be able to help her and each of them probably saying yes giving her some other way in which she would be able to become healed and become whole and each time not only did the remedies fail to change her over time she grew worse Now, she may have grown worse simply because the medicines and the uh, prescriptions were not helpful, and so things just grew worse and began to degenerate. But the implication for the text is that as she went to some of these doctors, that even the prescriptions that they gave her themselves were harmful at times, and it was the medical treatment that may have made her grow worse. Either way, even if she had any energy and any hope that the medical profession would be able to help her, she had no means to access it anymore because she had exhausted all of her financial resources on the doctors that she had already gone to. And so now here she is. She's in this condition, and she is feeling the ache, and she is feeling uh, the pain, and she is feeling uh, the weakness of her own body and beyond that she is also because of her condition considered unclean because of the Levitical law and as one who is unclean she is unable to go out into public anywhere and to have contact with other people. She can't even be touched. It's been 12 years since she's experienced a hug or even a handshake. She's been in isolation. She's been just wrapped up in her own suffering and in her own misery. And then she hears that this man named Jesus was coming into town. She'd heard the name. It had been buzzing for probably a, a few months now. He seems to have come out of nowhere. And yet the reports of this man who claimed to be sent from God, and some said might even be the, the promised Messiah, but the stories. He had been healing the sick, and he'd given sight to the blind, and even... A rumor from just a a couple of days before that he had healed someone of a thousand demons. In fact, that he had taken the demons out of the person and put them in a herd of of, uh, pigs and then drove the pigs off a cliff to their own death, which was not only amazing, but it was probably a little bit humorous and poetic justice for the Jewish believers hearing that, because why would anybody in a Jewish community have a herd of pigs in the first place? But they were amazed at this this man and and the reports of what he had been doing and now he is coming to town. He'd been invited by a man named Jairus and invited is probably too loose of a word. Uh, Jairus was a a powerful and a wealthy man. He was one of the uh, the leaders or uh, the rulers of the synagogue, which essentially means he was like an elder of the church. But he was responsible for everything that went on in the synagogue, for making sure the readers were ready for the Sabbath services, making sure that everybody was lined up, that they had what they need. If the scrolls needed to be replaced to be read, then it was responsible for securing them and making sure that the, that they, the people would be able to come into the synagogue and to worship without any hitches. And you didn't become a ruler of the synagogue without being highly respected and influential in your community. And usually that involved a great deal of money, but it also meant that he was a man who was respected because of his character and because of his piety. And he was a good man. And so he was not only a righteous man, but by all reports, he was a gentle man and a considerate person. Somebody that would be enjoyable to be around, not that she would ever have occasion to be around him. He's rich, she now had nothing. He's the leader of the synagogue, she is ritually unclean. It's been 12 years since she's allowed to come to the temple because anybody that she came in contact with, if she was to touch anybody or if anybody just bumped into her, then they too would be considered unclean, not unlike what we're dealing with right now. We can't go out. You know, If you have uh, symptoms of something, you might infect somebody else, so you have to stay away from people. And so she has heard that this guy has invited Jesus to come in because this guy, powerful as he was, he has a daughter that he loves who is now sick and is dying. That itself testifies to what this kind of guy this guy was because he's a powerful leader, influential leader in a patriarchal culture where women were little more than chattel and children were of very little value. And this is a daughter who has not yet come to maturity and he loves her. He's passionate about her. And so he sends his servants to get this Jesus who's in the, in the vicinity and to bring him in hoping that this Jesus would be able to heal his daughter's affliction. Others had heard about this Jesus as well, and so as we began in the text, we heard people thronged around him. They were just s- circling a huge, a huge crowd. Think of a, a large gathering, maybe at a at a large uh, ball game in tight spaces, or usually on Fourth of July uh, here for in Colonial Williamsburg for the for the for the fireworks. People were just there, and they were all pressed up together. But they were. People that were already around, and she momentarily, hearing that he is there, perhaps seeing the crowds as they were walking by her residence, she just had a sudden thought. No time to really think about it. Not time to think through the plan. But she just had this this hope. If I touch him, if I touch this guy who has made people well, then maybe, maybe I will be made well and be made whole. And so she goes out. And she presses through the crowd, no doubt touching people, contaminating them because she, who is unclean, is going in and, and, and has bumped into them. And she presses her way forward. She reaches out and she touches the cloak. And immediately she feels something surging within her. She knew she had been healed. But Jesus also felt something told that he felt power go out from him. We don't know exactly how he felt that or, or what, what that means, but we know that there certainly was a, a connection. He was fully aware. And so he turns and he says, and he'd have to say it rather loudly because there's a crowd that is buzzing. Who touched me? His disciples. They look at one another and I mean, what an absolutely ridiculous question. Who touched you? Look at the crowd. Lots of people have touched you. How can you ask, who has touched me? And yet, Jesus is not deterred in any way. And while we're not told that he said anything again, we are told that his eyes, he continued to look out over the crowd until the person who touched him would reveal themselves. By his very gaze and his very actions, he was continuing to speak and ask the question, who is it that touched me? Who touched me? Now, I think before we move on, it's important that we recognize I think every one of us can identify with this woman, at least in one way or another. Now, maybe you're not suffering from a chronic illness, or maybe you are. But even if you are not, maybe somebody who is close to you, family member, a spouse, a child, or a parent, has been suffering with something that is chronic, whether it's a physical illness or, uh, or emotional health, um, suffering from chronic depression, or, or, or there's something that is broken, uh, and you feel that. And even if you're not the one with the affliction, you suffer in your own way if somebody you love is suffering with this. But even if you don't have the physical or the emotional, I mean, every one of us is broken in some way. Every one of us has some need. Every one of us wants something, and most of us ask God through prayer to give us that which we feel that we need. Every one of us feels at some point or another that we are not good enough, that we don't measure up, that we are unworthy or maybe even unclean. Every one of us has experienced rejection and felt that we are like we are outsiders at some place and time. Every one of us has felt helpless. Many of us have had periods of our life where we felt somewhat hopeless as well. And I think we can identify with her in another way too. Because not only can we kind of Empathize with her emotional and maybe physical state. I suspect that most of us have also tried fixing our problems by inadequate and maybe even quick-fix self-help prescriptions only to find that not only do they not help, sometimes things are worse. Frankly, that's what most drug addiction and alcoholism is. It's people that are trying to numb themselves. That way I won't feel it for the time. And then the problems simply compound. Any other number of addictions uh, can take place. Some of them are, 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 seem absolutely foolish. At a difficult time in my own life, I recognized I became addicted to playing video games. You know, things were difficult. I would go face the things uh, day in and day out. And I'd come home and I'd veg Figure, you know, what's the difference? Half hour video game and then 12 hours later um, realize maybe I should go to bed at some point or another until I realize that's an addiction. and So I don't have anything to do with them anymore. Not because there's anything wrong with them, but because we try to medicate ourselves and the problems stay and sometimes even get worse. We understand this woman. And so when Jesus is saying who touched me, he is speaking not only to this woman, but he's speaking through this woman to us who want Something, who are in need of something, and who have some hope. We've heard of this Jesus and we have some idea that maybe in him and maybe through him we will find our our wholeness. But at the same time, we've got to wonder why does Jesus ask this question? Obviously, his disciples thought that it was crazy. Was he asking because he didn't know? I mean, that would seem to be the implication, except later in the text, we see that he seemed to have known her already, known her circumstance. And so he no doubt knew who it was that had touched him. God often asked questions in the scriptures, and Jesus asked the question, not because he's without knowledge, but because he wants us to ask these questions so that we have self-awareness, so that we are aware of how we are feeling, where we are standing, what the circumstance is, that is going on around us? And Jesus asked this question not because he doesn't know the answer, but he asked this question because he wanted something better for her. He asked this question for her benefit. You see, all, all she wanted was a remedy. What Jesus wanted was a relationship. All she was care, cared about was a miracle, but Jesus wants a meeting. Had she gone on her way, she would have missed out. She would have missed out on even more than she hoped for with the relationship with Jesus. She might have had misconceptions about Jesus and therefore about God. She might have thought that God is just a miracle dispensing machine, that if you put your token in, you know, maybe sometimes you get out, like one of those machines with the claws at, you know, some of the roadside restaurants that you go to, you know, put your token in and you try and, Somebody, somewhere, once in a while, comes out with a prize, but, you know, it's better than nothing, so you you take the chance. They might have seen God in, in that way. In her case, she was lucky. She got the prize. She may have viewed God somewhat like the genie in Aladdin's lamp, although I assume she probably hadn't read the story. But, you know, you go to God for your wishes. She may have viewed God the way that we are told that many, even many in the church, in the evangelical church, view God today. He's there when you need him, but he doesn't bother you otherwise. Missing the whole idea that he is aware, that he is knowledgeable, that he is sovereign, and that he is calling people into a relationship with him. And the reason that it's necessary for us to understand that he wants the relationship is not because it's nice, Well, isn't that nice? God wants a relationship with me. I I feel better already. But because it's necessary. See, the scripture tells us that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And unless we are in him, unless we are abiding in him, unless we are connected to him, unless we are in some relation to him, we bear no fruit. In other words, there's nothing benefit that can come. We may have circumstances, some days are better than others, but it is not coming from God. It's not because of the power of God unless we are in connection with him like the branches are to the vine. And Jesus is calling her in. Who touched me? He's calling her out in order to call her in. And he's addressing a very common, common thing in our humanity. She believed in God, she hoped in God, but she didn't recognize God as a person, and now a person who has come in the flesh. She didn't recognize that God is personal, and she wanted the relationship, but she wanted it on terms that God says it's not what's best for you. A a philosopher named Martin Buber was early 20th century uh, Jewish. He was German and also a citizen of, of Israel before he died. In 1923, he wrote a book called I and Thou, and then it was translated into English in the late 1930s. And he was talking about the, the nature of relationships. And first he talks about the I it relationships, that we have relationships with, a lot of relationships we have are characterized as I it. And those would be inanimate things. Instances I have a relationship with my iPad. And it's an I-it relationship. And even that I-it relationship has some personal characteristics, as Camper can tell you that any number of times, um, right as I turn it on during the congregation time or the congregational prayer, getting ready, pulling up my notes, it decides that it wants to update to the, whatever the newest uh, you know, s- system is. And I get angry at it as if it's a person who's doing something just to annoy me. It's kind of the same relationship I have with my car. Most of the time I have a good relationship with my car, but every once in a while, I had one instance this week, um, you know, I just want to kick it. Uh, But it's an I-it relationship. There's a relationship there, but it's a thing. It's an inanimate thing. The reality is most people want to have an I-it relationship with God. We know that he's there. We know that he's powerful. We know that he, what he can do. And we may even praise him and honor him and have a fairly good, robust theological understanding of who he is. But we want to relate to God as if he is only holy other and not a person and therefore personal. Who has redeemed people to be his own people that he would love. And to love means to have a relationship with them. And, and what Buber says is, well, we have I-it relationships and we have I-thou relationships. And so I have an I-thou relationship with my wife and with my kids and with you and some of you I know better than others. And so there's a, there's a closer relationship with there but it's an I-thou relation because it's personal. And what Jesus is doing by calling her out, he's calling her in so that she doesn't walk away with a mere I-it relationship with God, but that she can experience the I-thou relationship that he, and God is, that he has come to give. In other words, it's not enough to be healed, but he is calling her so that she could be made whole. And take it a step further. Because she is somebody who is ritually unclean, she needed to have a priest to offer up a sacrifice on her behalf, and then for a priest to declare her to be clean before she could re-enter into society. She was willing just to be healed and not have the problem anymore. Let other things, I guess, fall clear up on their own. But Jesus, who is the great high priest, who has offered himself, and in her case would offer himself, he's come to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice, and he is the priest who has declared not only her but anyone who believes to be cleaned. Cleansed by the blood that he shed on the cross, now dressed and wrapped in the righteousness that is his, that is counted as ours, simply by believing. And so she needed Jesus to make her whole. And that only came through the relationship that he was calling her into. And not only her, but all of us. And so he asked, who who touched me. And she was scared. And she should be scared. Because the reality is, she's is unclean. Anybody she touches becomes unclean. She went with the intention of touching him. Therefore, he became unclean because something unclean. He now bore her uncleanness. He now bore her sins simply because she had touched him. He now is identified with her. And it was a great penalty for an unclean person to go out and to infect other people. And so he, when he speaks and he's saying it loudly, she is afraid. Not only because of what immediate per- uh, repercussions may be, but what would be some of the ultimate repercussions. You can imagine her kind of hiding behind somebody tall, kind of peeking around the corner as Jesus is looking. But in his patience and in, in his constant stare and looking... She just felt drawn out and she comes out and we're told that she falls down on her knees and she lays the whole thing out. I'm the one who touched you. I did it because I just, I, I need to be made whole. And then probably apologizing, she doesn't know all what's going on. And Jesus says, woman, your faith has healed you. Now, it's interesting because the, the Greek word that is used there for healing is the same word for saved. And it's important that we understand that because we can get a misunderstanding of, of the implication of this passage or, or miss how it applies to us because very few of us are going to experience the immediate dramatic healing that this woman had. It was, it was complete and it was full. Uh, healing is part of saving. But in her case, the healing was the step towards being saved. There is a day that those of us who suffer, those of us who have needs, we who have been saved by faith we are also will be healed, and that is something that is part of of the promise of the gospel. Uh, But she says, and some of the translations make that distinction. Some translations say your faith has healed you. Some of them say your faith has saved you. Both of those are accurate. But then we left, if we think about it, to wonder, what does this mean? What does this passage show us? Now, when Jesus says, woman, your faith has saved you, I think first and foremost it tells us he does know her. And he knew about her condition. And he was drawing her out more fully so that more of her could experience healing. She could feel healing and and wholeness. But Jesus knows her personally. He wasn't asking for his own clarification. He was asking for her benefit. And that's evident by the fact that he definitively says, your faith has healed you. But the second thing that this... Statement that Jesus makes tells us is that she was transformed by grace through faith. Now, the word grace is not used in the passage. But many people touched Jesus. I mean, they were pressing around. It would have been impossible to not be touched. That's what the disciples were pointing out. But only she received healing, so far as we're told. She received a blessing she didn't deserve. She received favor, an act of God at work upon her, a gift. That's grace. And she received that based on what Jesus is saying through faith. Faith, as Jesus is telling us, is the instrument or the utensil by which we receive, connect, God's grace. He doesn't just push it down upon us. He gives us a gift to believe and it's by faith that we also are healed, that we are made whole, that we are saved. Faith is not just this thing that you force yourself to have and then good things might happen. Faith is the instrument. Think of a milkshake and a straw. You can suck on a straw all day long and you get nothing unless it is in something else. Faith in the New Testament is always the veracity of faith is always based on the truthfulness of the object in which it has believed the scriptures tell us this and illustrate this over and over again in in the Old Testament one of my favorite stories Israel had been in battle with the Philistines they had lost a battle so somebody had the bright idea they're going to go we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant in you know, whoever has the Ark of the Covenant, they'd apparently seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you have the, co- have the Ark with you, you can't, you can't be beaten in battle. That's what they believed. So they sent for the Ark. The Ark came in. Everybody in Israel's army was so excited. They let up a great shout, we're told. And the shout was so loud that the Philistine camp heard this and frightened the Philistines. The Philistines, these great, mighty warriors, were afraid. And they said amongst themselves, we're in trouble now. Nothing like this has ever happened to us. That's a God. We've heard about what this God did to the people in Israel. Now they have God within their camp, and we're going to go do battle with them. And then rather than tuck and run, they decided, well, if we're going to get beat, we're going to go down like warriors. And so they decided, and they mustered up, and they fought with everything that they had. And now Israel, with this great faith in the gift of God, fighting against these frightened Philistines and philistines whipped them what's the problem israel had faith they even had a tangible expression of the grace of god in their midst and they lost it's because the problem was their faith was in an it they thought faith itself was sufficient it wasn't the faith in the promise as it was given the ark of the covenant was to point them to the reality of the person of god it wasn't a token that brought them good luck the Apostle Paul says similarly. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. It's not, hey, if you really believe Jesus rose from the dead and you sincerely believe that and you know, and have an intensity about that, things will go well for you. Paul says, look, if it didn't happen, it does you no good. Because faith is the instrument of but the substance—it's not as there is no substitute for the substance, and that's important for us to understand. It's not just a doctrinal consideration, not splitting hairs, but it's a very practical thing because there are those who take this passage and similar ones to it, and they use it, and they've left so many people feeling broken and hopeless and helpless and more distraught than they were from the time they began because they take this idea it's your faith that saved you and they tell everybody if you just have faith everything will be right now things are not right well then there's something wrong with your faith then give us money so that we can tell other people and make them hopeless and give them a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ but it leaves people broken and hopeless and far from God. It's vitally important that we understand what the passage is teaching and the context that gives us the understanding. And faith that saved her is faith in Jesus. Now, we don't know anything about the quality or the substance of her faith. We know the substance of Jesus, but we don't know how good of a straw she had. There's good reason to believe she really didn't have great understanding. All she knew is she needed help. This guy was sent from God. He had healed some other people. She went with hope. She believed, but she was believing in Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that it's not the perfection of our faith that matters. It's not the theological acumen that enables us to connect with God. It's the grace of God that takes even the faith of a mustard seed and says, I can do it. I'll work with that. The object of of her faith was in Jesus. She knew that she had, in some way, that these words don't perhaps fully convey. She had a hope, perhaps even bordering on some superstition. But she believed that her hope and her salvation was found in Jesus. And that faith, Jesus says, saves you, heals you. You may be made whole. And then Jesus says to her, go in peace. Go in shalom. Which is more than just feeling good. You've been to your therapist, you laid everything out, and so you feel you got it off your chest and you feel a little bit better, a little bit more peace, less stress. Go in shalom. Go with the blessing and the presence of of God, go in right relationship to God, in right relationship to God in his covenants. It's a beautiful story. It speaks to us in many ways. But in the end, I think it's important that we recognize this, that Jesus himself elsewhere says this, in this life, you will have many troubles and trials, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. May God give us the grace to believe and to benefit from that promise that is in Christ Jesus to all whom he loves. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this woman, for the story and mostly for Jesus. We thank you for your love that sent him, his love that came. We thank you for every benefit that is ours in Christ. Lord, sharpen our focus. May we turn our attention to Jesus, seeing that he's not only there for our religious, our doctrinal positions, but in every aspect of life, he is our hope and he is the answer. Lord, draw us close. May we hear this call. Who touched me? Who wants to be part of me? And may we come before you ourselves, laying ourselves before you, telling you everything, that in every aspect of our lives, we may be made whole to the praise and glory of your grace and of your power. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our King. Amen.